The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And in today's Policy in Focus episode of Talking Indonesia, we'll be discussing the environment Indonesian academics face in conducting social science research. Do Indonesian social scientists enjoy the freedom to conduct socially relevant research on any topic of their choosing? How is their research funded, and how does the government view their work? More broadly also, how does the entanglement of Indonesian universities with the state shape the work of social science researchers? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined today by the founding director of Universitas Indonesia's Asia Research Center, Dr. Inaya Rakmani. Dr. Rakmani is also the lead researcher of an 11-country study on mobilizing social sciences in Southeast Asia and Bangladesh, supported by the Global Development Network. Episodes in the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia are supported by the Knowledge Sector Initiative, or KSI a partnership between the Australian and Indonesian governments that aims to improve the use of evidence in development policymaking. Policy and Focus episodes appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Inaya, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Thank you, Dave. It's all my pleasure. And it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, Could I start by asking you, how would you describe the state of social science research in Indonesia at present? At present, uh, which is a continuation of the state of social sciences since perhaps the uh, order era, if not the colonial period, it's largely still being marginalized by life sciences, engineering, and especially so in a different way under the recentralization of research under the National Agency for Research and Innovation, which is BRIN in Indonesian. Many of the research that is being funded and prioritized are those that are in line with market interests and mechanisms to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. What are some of the concrete manifestations of that marginalization? Is it a lack of funding, lack of say in the way universities are run, or how does that manifest itself? Now, research, I'm going to give a bit of background about the funding mechanisms of social science research in Indonesia, which applies to all disciplines, actually. There are two funding sources. Uh, The first is under the Ministry of Education, Culture, Research and Technology, which is led by Nadim Makarim former CEO of the largest ride-hailing app in Indonesia and perhaps Southeast Asia, Gojek. And the second is through the National Agency of Research and Innovation, or BRIN. The latter focuses on market-oriented research to help the Indonesian government to recuperate from the economic losses due to the pandemic. The first is part of a larger or macro nation-building developmental strategy of social sciences in support of government policy, there are some pockets in which each individual researcher or cluster 
can play around themes and topics to fund research that is more academic, long-term, and theoretical. But you need to really think about ways to use keywords in the proposal to make sure that they can come through and be funded eventually. So the kinds of marginalization actually come in a very low interest in the government to finance social science research that reflects on the structural condition of our society. And looking at Indonesia as not necessarily unique, but part of a larger global change that faces climate change, faces a neoliberal reform, faces a common pandemic, although appearing or resurfacing or uh, manifesting in different symptoms. So there's this kind of nationalist boundaries that contain the kind of social science humanities, as well as research coming from other disciplines that seems to me, and also statistically, research that is being funded are those that are clearly linked to market interest, profit-seeking, or entrepreneurialism, or creating patents or copyrights in ways that can elevate universities' ranking globally uh, if it's funded by the Ministry of Education and if it's funded by the National Agency of Research and Innovation. It needs to result in patents or possibilities of recommending startups or entrepreneurial companies' uh, strategies to sustain itself. Straight off the blocks, most social science research is not going to result in patents. A lot of it will not be able to be commercialised. In practice, with those sorts of constraints, what sort of research is being funded, I guess, in large state universities like your own Universitas Indonesia in the social science sphere? The ones that are being funded by the endowment agency, which is LPDP, it's an education endowment funding mechanism that's under the Ministry of Finance. Well, endowment funding means that it's outside of the state budget mechanism. And if you look into the kinds of proposal that are being funded, kinds of research that are being funded during the pandemic, almost all of the research are life sciences, uh, not even economics. Research is being funded because attention is being given to vaccination or implementation of control mechanisms for social and physical mobility, etc. So unless it really has a concrete solution for the pandemic, there is really small possibilities for it to be funded. That's if it's funded by the endowment funding agency. And for the Ministry of Education, the kinds of research being funded is one that, if it's in social sciences, one that has policy impact. But if it's too much in the theoretical area or being critical of the government, if you narrate the proposal that way, there's also little possibility for it to be funded by the government. You've mentioned the impact of COVID-19, the pandemic, in shaping that government-funded research agenda on the one hand. But, I mean, I know from your work as well that going back to the authoritarian era under Sahato in Indonesia, universities were very much positioned to support this ideology of developmentalism and there was no space really for social science research conducted with, within universities to be critical of the government at that time. How much of the, the current constraints in funding that social science research is facing in Indonesia are a result of new developments and how much of it traces very directly back to that historical legacy of 
social science as being subordinate to the government agenda under authoritarianism? Uh, that's a good question, but not easy to answer. To see, firstly, any form of sciences as a historical product, there's this genealogy of placing sciences, even in biomedicine or life sciences or epidemiology, there's this strong drive to make the research into something that's usable or practical. But at the same time, even though this is a product of a historical trajectory in Indonesia that can be traced back to the East Indies, what with the disbandment of Eichmann, which is very interesting and sad at the same time, uh, this is a phenomenon that I think every scientist around the world are facing because uh, the world is just geared more and more towards fast-acting, rapid responses to crisis in front of our eyes rather than really trying to understand where we as uh, human beings relate to nature and where we are at the time being in comparison to, for instance, 5,000 years ago. So this is not something that's unique in Indonesian. But if you want to understand how this came about and trace it in the past 100 years or so, you can really see a continuity from the New Order era in terms of the institutions that trained, mentored the 80s generation of social scientists and scientists in general, if you want to be successful within the universities, then you need to prove yourself useful for the government. If you're not, then you would most probably be ousted and you would be part of an activist circle. Now universities, like in the case of Australia and many countries around Southeast Asia, are neoliberalized, uh, are seeking for student market funding, for research funding, for corporate funding. So it's really increasingly difficult to discern between state public universities with uh, research think tanks, private uh, research organizations, or even research development divisions in startup companies because it's increasingly self-financed, self-funded, and it needs to be autonomous and fund their own employees, which is not unlike the case of the research center I had right now. However, in the pockets of public intellectual activism in Indonesia, there's this tradition that's being passed on in which intellectuals and activists see themselves as outside of the state, outside of state mechanisms, which when it's linked with neoliberal mechanisms, where as long as you make money, as long as you give commission to the university, then you can actually in practice research things that you find interesting. So there's that pocket as well in this era in which the generation recruited after the year 2000s, after Reformasi, are equipped with very flexible and also very precarious tools to widen the space for academic research that was previously absent under the New Order regime because repressive intelligence, uh, military influence exists within the university corridor. So it's always contradictory. There's these pros and cons. There's these tools that contain and there's also these tools to widen the space. But paradoxically, it's also market-oriented. So it's fascinating and a bit depressing at the same time. It does uh, sound like you could have at best mixed feelings about that situation. I was taken by your description there that there's a tradition of intellectuals and activists perceiving themselves as outside the state in Indonesia. Of course, Indonesian universities are somewhat entangled with the state in that even the Minister of Education has a partial vote in the appointment of the heads of Indonesian state universities. Certainly at the large Indonesian state universities, most of the academics or a significant proportion of them are civil servants. 
how does that entanglement with the state shape the space to conduct social science research for academics in, in universities in Indonesia today? If you look at universities as state apparatus that's using market channels to finance research, teaching in ways that was previously funded by the state, then yes, there's very much a gradual process of idealization in which now uh, researchers, lecturers see themselves as having to produce academic articles, uh, publish in these often meaningless tier ranks, uh, journals with Q1, Q2, Q3, without that kind of academic insights that enable each researcher to think about what kind of review would I like to get or which kind of academic I'd like to connect myself to theoretically, etc. At the same time, this is, of course, happening as well in Australia and Singapore, in which journal publications become so important that at some point you publish just to publish and not really think about who's reading your article or trying to have your thoughts engage with larger public debates that is not only part of academic discussions, but also public discussions. So this is not uniquely Indonesian. What is uniquely Indonesian is that the universities that are what Australia has as the GOA, Indonesia has Peta NBH, which is the semi-autonomous state universities that has a long history of being funded by the state budget. And at the same time, they are civil servants, but there's this discourse that civil servants would transition into autonomous university uh, workers that will experience regular or periodical review by corporate workers. And the impact on uh, lectures is that uh, (laughs) I'm going to use politically incorrect (laughs) example, but it's fitting. Um, caregivers, whether men or women in the household, if you need to take care of your parent or kid, or if you have a single income or double income family, this kind of domestic responsibility becomes entangled and you can't really separate between public and domestic spaces. In uh, the case of lectures on campus, you can't really separate between state and professional laboring because the kind of spaces in which you are permitted to speak your ideas, even if you're educated in an Australian or European university, in my case, there are some jargons I can't mention within my own faculty or university because it's understood differently because of a very different set of ideological constructs about what state means, about what a unitary state you can't question, the constitution, etc., And the liberal construct in which many of the generations recruited after the 2000s were exposed to Northern American literature, Western European literature, uh, Asia Pacific literature, and looking at the colonial experience that we had continuing into the kind of work and employment or relationship with the state in ways that the West sees it, West, quote unquote, the North sees it. So there's this mixed feelings and it produces a really confused generation, actually, because there's no place for these misfits. Understanding on one hand, all of the cultural jargons that we can say, what we can't think, what we can think. But at the same time, also understanding the Western discourses full of contradictions as what our counterparts feel of our generation and the 90s generation in the Western Hemisphere, uh, these three large continents, Asia Pacific, Western Europe, and the US, and North America. And somewhat, we're also disconnected with the Latin American, African, and Central Asian discourses because of language barrier, which I find would be interesting if we didn't have that 
cultural barrier. Uh, continuing on my point, there's this generation that knows how a uh, liberal mechanism works, how market mechanism works, but there's the ideological boundary because academic laboring would not be as effective if we use those mechanisms fully. Likewise, if we stay within these state constructs fully, we won't be able to do any meaningful work. So in short, our Western counterparts experience high flexibility, high precarity, they're able to produce really quality academic work, but there's very little security whether or not even the best of scholars can become professors in 10, 20 years' time. In comparison to Indonesia, this generation has security. If we stay the course, be very disciplined in completing our administrative requirements, we will become professors, but we experience very high exploitation because many of the productivity that is aspired by universities to be part of the global ranking is decentralized into the 2000s generation because of the very liberal market mechanisms that this generation is used to. So it's, it's, a, it's good and bad, hopefully mostly good. You've emphasized a lot the position and the role of the generation of academics recruited during the 2000s. And I would assume that reflects you being part of that generation in part. You've risen to a leadership position, being the, the director of a centre within Universitas Indonesia. Well, I guess overall, what is the position of that 2000s generation? Are they in leadership positions? How high have they been able to rise through universities? Or is it still academics who were recruited into public universities under Sahato who were in the critical leadership roles? I think like the previous generation, uh, the generation of the 2000s also has factions. So there are young lecturers recruited part of the cronyist culture in which if you're close enough to the local oligarchy, then you would get a position. And there's this incidental recruitments through more open mechanisms that was actually instilled through funding from the IMF, funding from AusAid, that made sure that university reform opened up more professionalization through open recruitment. So there's this hodgepodge of different people on one side, those extending on the predatorial politics that has been existing since the new order and even perhaps before. And there's this kind of open market system that's equally an ideal, I think, uh, in that case. In terms of the Asia Research Center, it was also a historical incident because some of us had the chance and experienced the accident of meeting really good mentors that in the case of Australia, in the case of the US and the Netherlands and the UK, they are also outside of the uh, mainstream, actually, because they're not the type of careerist that wants to get ahead of the game, but they actually take the time to sit with their students that they supervise to find whatever meaning they can in the writing that they do. So it's a double layer of accident, and it's quite difficult. When you say the term leadership, it, it doesn't sound like a success story to me. It sounds like many, many suffering because we needed to go against the habit or culture. And in many cases, we were failing because of these factions in this generation. So we never achieve a critical mass. 
So the kind of hope that we have, I think, at least for those identifying with public intellectualism, the kind of what Burewe says, in which social sciences need to be partial towards the public because there's clear inequalities between people, whether the middle or lower classes and working classes with the elite. So by siding with the working classes and middle and lower classes, you are binding together that 90% so that you can stand strong during the elections. Well, that's generally the idea. But when we discover that this generation has factions and it's quite a continuum of the previous generation and the kind of factions is also along the lines of the cancel culture or Me Too movement or whatever narrative that comes from either the U.S. or English-speaking Anglo-Saxonian countries, it's because uh, the generation also is educated in those countries and uses the master's tool to dismantle theoretically what they see as an oppressor. It, it becomes messy and it's really difficult to bind together otherwise sets of interests that I think we all could benefit from. So the kind of leadership position that you say is there actually if this generation actually wants to think less of themselves, <laughs> of ourselves, and think more about what the products of sciences or the writing and ideas are useful for. And if in the cases that we cannot dismantle the oligarchy, then who can we redistribute this access to? So lacking an academic agenda is a huge barrier because Clearly, there's no institution to internalize that to us. And we're lacking a, a generation of mentors because much of our seniors were absorbed into the polling agency, to the parliament, to professorial positions and rector position and politics, elite politics, uh, ministerial positions, that we can only find those figures in our teachers when we do our PhDs. Even they are people who are the outliers. So they're not exactly the typical Western scholars, so to speak. Those positions, I think, exist in the pocket, Dave, uh, with very little resource. And if there is one thing that we can manipulate from uh, the economic structure that we have today is actually that immaterial resources can be converted materially. So if you have a strong persona, if you have a huge following, you can actually bring that on campus and gain some leverage against the elite structures that contain our academic thinking. So that's how some of us got away with saying some of the things we could otherwise not say. So that's that small space we can work in. It's fascinating. And you've touched on many themes that I could ask you further about. I wonder if I could delve there a little bit further into this idea of the ability of younger academics to push for cultural change within Indonesian universities that might open up more space to conduct more meaningful or more socially engaged research. Overseas, we sometimes see examples of, say, Saiful Madi, an academic at Shakwala University in Aceh, being temporarily imprisoned before he ultimately received a, a presidential amnesty simply for criticising recruitment practices of lecturers at his university. Another lecturer, Dr. Robertus Robert, at one point having the head of his university, uh, I believe, seeking to bring defamation proceedings against him shortly before that, that head of the university was dismissed, and other cases of that sort at various universities around Indonesia. How hazardous is it for academics when they question the governance of their institutions? Are those sorts of cases extreme outliers or 
do Indonesia academics face very real repercussions for careers, even criminal or, or civil proceedings, if they do take on the, the governance of their institutions? That's a really good question. And I think in this case, academics lectures like Saiful, because at the beginning of his case, I was part of the group that supported him in the trial processes. And there are other cases like Saiful. This is experience as well in our counterparts in Aji and in the Alliance of Independent Journalists. And this has been experienced uh, for decades. And this is what many of uh, the rights activists mention as academic freedom to be protected by uh, the convention. And this is part of civic activism in which academics as part of civil society, journalists as part of civil society needs to be protected. And there's this legal process that is the battlefield and the media space also has a battlefield for these names to be champions or actors or symbols for a larger movement. That's one way to see it. And academic freedom is actually not on the attack, but some people are used as examples. And many of them also experience digital attacks before they're brought to court because by crowding them with cyber armies and intimidating them with phone calls and text messages, Little attention is being given in social media so that it gives the chance for no actors to have to come forth with being the predator. But if that doesn't work, then court becomes a second opportunity. So elite in this case is not only university elites, but it's many actors backing a rector or backing a system that benefits them. And you can link that with certain political parties. And these cases are usually made an example, either close to the elections, after the elections, or because their narrative is too close to one opposition or one incumbent. So this is very much a struggle for elite power. And if there's a third way or a second way or a one and a half way to look at it is that if you have enough collectivity, if you have enough reputation, and if you can manipulate a bit the market mechanisms that the other faction of the elite is striving for, then actually academics and journalists can have more freedom, not in a sense that it's protected by the law, but more freedom in terms of understanding the political field. And that way, I think it protects people who have an important say and are actually building a critical mass in ways that are more constructive, constructive meaning that there are less resources put in the process in comparison to really going head to head and budding specific elites, because when it becomes personal, then they would, they meaning certain alliances within the elite would actually put in the resources to crowd out those people. And it's really a long process of building a safe house and making sure that they have people protecting them. And usually these people are also picked up by former military officials that have antagonism towards the current elite. So it's a really complex political process that is no less smart than what the elite strategizes. So it's for me, for a mother of one, it's very confusing. So the way that I recommend those who really want to go against the elite is using the bureaucratic channels to provide a safe space so that you can voice your opinions in rooms that are untouchable by the state in ways these international collaborations, these kinds of international panels can be really useful because you can always send that over to your counterparts domestically collaborating with our uh, counterparts internationally so that 
it's at arm's length. It's too risky for any actor of the government to close that avenue because it would make them really look bad internationally or bilaterally. Uh, my concern is keeping certain people safe. So in the case of Saiful Mahdi, I was in full support. I signed the amicus curiae. But after three cases, I saw that so many resources is put into the process. And I have much respect to all of the activist lawyers that work pro bono protecting him. But it kept making me think about many other caregivers, mothers, men, women who have to do this on top of uh, making sure that their kids are going to school and paying for tuition. So my personal and political position is to find that feel for the game so that political spaces for academic freedom and journalist freedom becomes wider, even though it's still very small, so that less and less of my friends are intimidated by the invisible state or the deep state. Now, obviously, criticism of well-connected university and perhaps state elites is one area that might require that strategizing that you're talking about there. Are there topics of research in Indonesia that also are likely to incur that sort of very direct backlash where academics need to tread carefully in carving out a space for themselves to be able to conduct research? The clearest is questioning the unitary state, questioning the constitution. Leninism, Marxism, communism is also a sensitive topic, but more than communism is actually radical Islam because that's part of the narrative that the incumbent government is going against, the incumbent party is going against. Uh, if it's academic and if it's part of theoretical discussion, uh, Marxist theories are actually permissible. In my case, for some reason, I can get away with being the editor-in-chief of Marxist Journal in the Progress. It's theoretical. It's not a form of agitation or propaganda. It's an actual academic discussion. So as long as you can argue for that, being a civil servant, it's a form of using spaces of academic excellence to talk about things that is otherwise frowned upon. But it's really a delicate area that we need to tread on. And there's that balance that I think needs some time to develop. And I really hope that more and more, either on the left or on the middle center or whatever, there's more diversity in the kind of ideological theories and social sciences that we can talk about. Even when it's questioning the state, it's appreciated as such, not as a challenge to bring down the state, but rather to critically assess and make uh, governance actually work for the public rather than the elite. Returning to the question of research funding, just for a second, you've set out at the beginning of our discussion, the various formal mechanisms that the government makes available to fund research within universities in Indonesia. Some of the larger autonomous universities do generate considerable income through student revenue. Is that money then directed into funding research and is that more flexible in its use than the direct funding schemes that the government provides? To my knowledge, Dave, the student market income that the university gets is used to pay for operations because less than less state budget is used to fund employment. So the student tuition income is not being used for research. There's very little uh, cross-subsidy. If there is, it's operated through regular routine fundings, through the faculty and departments, through it's called like seed funding grant in comparison to the Australian system. 
most of the funding for research comes through the Ministry of Education. Even less comes from BRIN and RISPRO, that's the endowment funding. And a large chunk comes from privately commissioned research. Some of it goes through research center, some of it comes through consultancy. The consultancy part, the individual consultancy, it's called the Naga Ahli in Indonesia or expert staffing or expert resources is a larger chunk than the former. And the formation of Autonomous Research Center, which is very market-oriented, is in part to facilitate the process of organizing those individual consultancies so that universities can cut commission from the donor market mechanisms or the private market mechanisms that capture the moonlighting of lectures. Hence, ARC, the Asia Research Center, could be formed because we were able to use that aspiration for our advantage. What sort of private entities are commissioning research and, and what sort of research would they be commissioning in the social science field? In the social science field, ministerial uh, commissioned research usually is, it's called pendampingan or assistantship. It falls in community engagement in the Tridharma or the research teaching nexus. In Australian terms, it's policy-oriented research. It can be programmatic research in which there's an applied study to make sure that policies are uh, well-placed and that it works within the community that it's being implemented in. It's usually rural because many of Dana Desa or the village funds go through the Ministry of Internal Affairs, State Affairs, and it goes through Swakalola or the Open Recruitment Funding Scheme that in some parts can be a fair open mechanism system of procurement. In other cases, there's an indirect appointment of universities to uh, receive funding. And that can come up to, if it's Swakalola or independent funding that's outside of the state budget, it can go up to 10 billion rupees, which is a uh, million Australian dollars, is it? Uh, off the top of my head, I think 10 billion should be a million dollars. Yeah, it can span between satu miliar, 1 billion rupees, to 10 billion rupees. That's from independent funding. That amount usually goes through centers or units. It can be outsourced again, so it can go through an enterprise, then outsourced to a university, then go through a university and outsourced to individuals. There's many mechanisms to do it. But it is quite a significant amount of funding in comparison to the Australian Research Council or any alternative grants that science funds have across uh, the Americas and Europe. Still on that question of research funding, you've highlighted in your previous work on doing research in Indonesia, the operation of patronage networks uh, in the allocation of research funding. How do those operate and how do they shape what social science research is possible? Uh, there is a gradual transition or transformation from the kind of patronage system that Heron Groho mentioned in the Social Science and Power book, written by Fedi Hadith and Daniel Dakidei. Then research funding uh, exclusively comes through professors, and only those aligned with those professors usually uh, act like an abidalm in the Javanese culture. Their younger lecturers assisting and facilitating their seniors to make sure that the research is carried out well. In the 90s, the system became more open, and now there still is. The former supervised students of these professors 
that are currently professors that maintain that kind of relationship with their students. Uh, and you can see that in moments in which Dikti or the higher education director general is instilling policies that all professors and all those who want to get a promotion need to be published internationally. And you see an array of senior lecturers that write with their students. And if you really uh, check their writing, those are the thesis and dissertation of their students. And they put in their name so that they can accelerate their professorship. So these predatorial relationships are expanding into the more open market system in which old ways of patronage still persists. The effect on social sciences is it's really difficult to tell the difference if you are not part of both systems or not familiar with both systems, what constitutes a patronage system in which a professor rides on the laboring of their students or younger lecturers and which kind of professors are actually mentoring. Because if you really don't pay attention to the practices and intent, it's really difficult to tell the difference. Because in cases of really good and quality mentorship, the uh, academic space also becomes personal. There are many books that we can read on this, in which, especially in the feminist literature, in which mentorship really needs to get into coaching or assisting former students with their family decisions or even uh, partner decisions to maintain domestic labor in the household so that they can have wider spaces in academic work without actually counter-exploiting their partners. So it's a task for social scientists really to study these. In the case of Indonesia, the spaces of social sciences in terms of academic collaboration becomes blurred uh, because we have now 20 and early 30-year-old lecturers that can't tell the difference between which kind of writing with your professor means that they're exploiting you and which kind of writing with your professor means they're actually teaching you how to write and actually putting their reputation on stake so that we can be published. So I think in this case, open discussions with peers becomes really important because we get to talk about what kinds of exploitations or what kinds of mentorships that we experience. And it's really personal and cultural. It's really tricky. So to say the least, patronage systems have transformed into relationships in which student and supervisors are co-authoring articles. In some cases, it's a win-win mutual relationship. In other cases, it's exploitative. And it latches on to the kind of publication requisites that is the main policy of the Directorate General of the Higher Education now. You know, if we think back across all the various strands of being a, an Indonesian academic in the social sciences that you've mentioned, from navigating the bureaucracy and, and culture of the university to these issues around mentorship, particularly with the, the brain drain out of academia into public office and advisory roles, as well as the private sector, to issues of, of government and public reactions to research, it sounds like an absolute minefield. Obviously, these are long-standing problems that don't have easy fixes, but is there any particular area of reform that you would highlight as the highest priority in terms of smoothing the field for Indonesian academics working in the social sciences to be able to conduct more meaningful research? That's an excellent question. 
I would think that finding allies in other disciplines is an important strategy because they are as frustrated as us in the social sciences facing bureaucratic hurdles and trying to really work with communities because much of my colleagues and friends in agricultural sciences, they work closely with peasants and farmers without actually knowing the social theories about agricultural and rural development and what urbanization means, what modernization means. But because they practice it, uh, they actually have a kind of praxis, political praxis that they work on. And it happens in coffee shops and WhatsApp groups, and we get to talk about what we're really concerned about and it being a common academic agenda. I find that it's increasingly easier to talk with people from really extremely different disciplines. Like what I mentioned, agricultural sciences, I have an ally in geothermal development and sustainable energy. And the person is a female scientist working long-term, like decades with geothermal and agricultural change in West Java. I find it easier to talk with them than my counterparts in social sciences that are thinking about advancing their careers with these kinds of theories that put them in places of more privilege and trying to find higher aspirations to get themselves ahead of the game. So finding a common political agenda that sides with the public and sides with people with very low access to education and resources, I think, is really important. And they can come from very different fields as social scientists. And as the economy is really changing and intersecting and overlapping, I think allying with our partners from other faculties becomes really, really uh, important. It's made me think about looking at social issues in ways that relate to nature, because more and more uh, funding is strategized globally towards that area. And I'm finding many of, of climate change scientists, actually environmental engineers, environmental economics, are using left-leaning jargons without actually studying the theories. So I find it really interesting that their praxis falls within the scope of trying to redistribute wealth and access, problematizing inequalities without using those kinds of theories that we might be overly obsessed with in social sciences. So having them as allies actually has been at the very least relieving on an everyday basis. And at the very best, it puts resources into social science research that is multi-year because they do have privilege over social sciences in terms of discipline and government funding, whether in Indonesia or globally. So I would say that would be a good strategy. There's definitely a lot more I could ask you, uh, Inaya, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today to share your insights. It's been great. It's been great as well, Dave. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Inaya Rahmani, founding director of Universitas Indonesia's Asia Research Centre and lead researcher of an 11-country study on mobilizing social sciences in Southeast Asia and Bangladesh, supported by the Global Development Network. Keep an eye out for the Policy and Focus tagline for future installments in the Policy and Focus series of Talking Indonesia. Policy and Focus episodes are edited by Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Param and appear periodically in alternate weeks to regular Talking Indonesia episodes. Don't forget you can find the entire archive for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.